0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. On November 24, 1971, a man who identified himself as Dan Cooper bought a one-way ticket from Portland to Seattle on Northwest Orient Airlines flight number 305. He paid for his ticket in cash and made his way to seat 18C. Shortly after takeoff, he summoned one of the flight attendants, Florence Schaffner, to his seat. He handed her a piece of paper. The flight attendant, believing it to be a phone number or a pickup line, slid the note into her pocket. But the man leaned forward. Miss, he said, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Schaffner opened the piece of paper. Written in felt-tip pen, in capital letters, was a short, chilling statement. The normal-looking man in seat 18C would blow up the plane, unless his demands were met he wanted Schaffner to sit next to him. The flight attendant sank into the seat. The man in seat 18C calmly opened his briefcase to display a tangle of wires and several red cylinders that looked like dynamite. Schaffner recalled that what she saw in his briefcase looked lethal. He soon had $200,000 in hand and jumped out of the plane with a parachute on his back Neither he nor the money, aside from a few scraps littering the wilds of the Pacific Northwest, were ever found. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting contributor, Kalina Fraga. Today, we'll delve into the unsolved mystery of D.B. Cooper. After reading Cooper's note and seeing the wires in his briefcase, Schaffner went to the front of the plane to inform the pilot, William Scott. Suddenly, a routine, quick flight from Portland to Seattle had become a matter of life and death. The passengers, however, had no idea what was going on. They were simply asked to move to the front of the plane. The pilot mumbled something about engine trouble through the intercom and an excuse about having to circle in the sky to let off fuel. One young man decided to stay put. He just happened to be sitting in the back of the plane across the aisle from D.B. Cooper himself. Bill Mitchell recalled that he felt something was off, but not because of Captain Scott's odd demand or the circling of the plane. My ego got in the way of this, he told Como News 48 years later. It sort of bugged me that this flight attendant was talking with this older guy with a suit and smoking, and here you had a University of Oregon sophomore sitting right across the aisle and she wouldn't make eye contact or anything." Mitchell, along with the flight attendants, would later help the FBI with their sketch of the hijacker, but their description only deepened the mystery. Cooper looked like a normal airline passenger. The FBI would later describe the man as a white male, 6'1", 170 to 175 pounds, age mid-40s, olive complexion, brown eyes, black hair, conventional cut, parted on the left. In other words, someone who could easily disappear in a crowd. For two hours, the plane flew in circles. On the ground, Northwest Orient Airlines scrambled to satisfy Cooper's demands. Cooper waited patiently, now wearing dark sunglasses. According to a 2017 profile in New York Magazine, Cooper gave Schaffner a $20 bill for his $2 drink and told her to keep the change. He seemed familiar with the land below, often glancing out the window and noting calmly things like, that looks like Tacoma. The plane finally landed in Seattle at 5.39 p.m. Here, Cooper exchanged his hostages for money, $200,000, which had been photographed but not marked, and four parachutes. Two were military-grade from the nearby McCord Air Force Base. Cooper rejected these two and asked for different ones. He received another pair, this time donated from a local skydiving school. His demands met, Cooper let most of the crew go. He told the pilot he wanted to fly to Mexico. But here, his plan hit a snag. The plane couldn't fly to Mexico in one go they would have to make a refueling stop in Reno. Cooper agreed, but he had several more demands. The plane must fly at a low altitude, with the rear door open. They also must fly as slowly as possible. The pilot agreed to these conditions, but refused another of Cooper's requests, that the plane take off, with the rear stairs lowered. This was too dangerous, and Cooper relented. At around 7.40 p.m., two hours after landing, The plane took to the skies. This time, it was followed by several Air Force jets from McCord Air Force Base. With the crew clustered in the cabin, the hijacked plane hurtled through the cold November night. With the rear door of the aircraft open, the interior became freezing. Then, at 8 p.m., a light flashed in the cockpit. The rear stairs had been lowered. About 15 minutes later, the crew felt an upward jerking motion. They remained in the cockpit for two hours. At 10.15, the plane landed in Reno, on a tarmac, surrounded by police, ready to search the plane and arrest the hijacker. But D.B. Cooper was not there. The hijacker had vanished, and so had the ransom money. Cooper had left behind two of the parachutes and his black clip-on tie. He had vanished into the night and into what one Washington Post reporter called a godforsaken swath of rugged Washington forest country. An FBI agent agreed with this assessment, saying, if there's any place you wouldn't want to jump into, that'd be it. It was an astonishing, daring escape. But the FBI felt confident that they could track down the hijacker. After all, they had plenty of clues. They had his name. They had his description. They had witnesses who could describe his personality and mannerisms. And they had the fact that he was confident using parachutes, confident enough to leap out of a moving plane and into the frigid darkness. Tips immediately poured in. The lead FBI investigator at the time, Ralph Himmelsbach, recalled that they had a long, long list of possible suspects. He recounted that they had real, real good ones, real, real poor ones, a lot of both, and many in between. The Northwest hijacking investigation, called Norjak by the FBI, had begun. Surely, surely, they would be able to track down the daredevil who had escaped with the ransom money. But the FBI had much less information than they had initially assumed. For starters, Dan Cooper was a fake name. Adding to the confusion, the media mistakenly reported the hijacker as D.B. Cooper, a name which stuck. As the investigation started, the FBI had a bewildering mystery, and not much else. He was carrying a briefcase when he stepped aboard the plane. Northwest 305 from Portland, on the tarmac in the rain. Dressed in low... Five years later, the FBI had nothing but a fistful of dead ends. They had considered 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen of them. By 2011, the case file on D.B. Cooper was 40 feet long. By 2016, the FBI officially washed their hands of the whole thing, announcing that the Cooper case had used up too much of their time and energy, and they needed to relocate their manpower to other pressing investigations. Meanwhile, the story of D.B. Cooper spread through popular culture. Chuck Brodsky sang The Ballad of D.B. Cooper, which presents the hijacker as a folk hero. The song is a matter-of-fact retelling of the whole affair, with lyrics like He was carrying a briefcase when he stepped aboard the plane, Northwest 305 from Portland on the tarmac in the rain. Himmelsbach strongly disagreed with such portrayals. Nothing heroic about him, he said. Nothing glamorous, nothing admirable at all. He jeopardized the lives of 40 people, and I have no admiration at all. He was a stupid, selfish man. But the story of D.B. Cooper continued to spread. Today, there are songs, movies, and books about D.B. Cooper. The town of Ariel Washington, near where Cooper could have landed, celebrates D.B. Cooper Day after Thanksgiving. And the iconic character of Dale Cooper on the television show Twin Peaks is a nod to the infamous Skyjacker. The story leaves us with two lingering questions. Who is D.B. Cooper? And just as compelling, where is D.B. Cooper and his money? To this day, there are no definitive answers. Over the years, the FBI has had potential compelling suspects. Richard McCoy seemed like a dead ringer for Cooper. Five months after D.B. Cooper hijacked a plane over Washington and Oregon, McCoy hijacked one over Utah. Like Cooper, McCoy demanded and received ransom, this time $500,000, and, like Cooper, McCoy leapt from the plane using parachutes and escaped. However, McCoy was caught, and the FBI found that he had a solid enough alibi on the night the DB Cooper hijacked flight number 305 to dismiss him as a suspect. Robert Rackstraw also seemed promising. He was a special forces paratrooper, so someone who could theoretically leap from a plane with a parachute and survive. The FBI cleared him as a suspect in 1979, but this didn't convince Thomas Colbert, a documentary filmmaker who has independently investigated the Cooper case. Colbert believes that the FBI is covering up the truth because of Rackstraw's CIA ties. But another D.B. Cooper expert, this time Jeffrey Gray, the author of Skyjacker, which is one of the definitive books on Cooper, doesn't believe Rackstraw was ever a serious suspect. Gray does not include him in his book. A man named Dwayne Webber even claimed to be D.B. Cooper on his deathbed. But the FBI had succeeded in lifting DNA evidence from Cooper's discarded tie. Weber was not a match. Since 1971, only a few clues have appeared. In 1980, a young boy found a bundle of ragged $20 bills along the Columbia River. Their serial numbers matched the ransom money that Cooper had received nine years earlier, But the amount he found was only about $6,000, which means that most of it is still missing to this day. Over the years, other discoveries include things like scraps of parachute, which likely belongs to the hijacker. But nothing definitive has ever been discovered. D.B. Cooper leapt from the plane and simply disappeared into the night. A Seattle case agent named Larry Carr believes that there are so few clues because Cooper probably died in his attempt. He said no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch-black night in the rain with a 200-mile-an-hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. What's more, one of Cooper's two parachutes was a training parachute, and it was sewed shut. Something, Carr notes, a skilled skydiver would have checked. The pilot of fateful flight number 305 agrees that Cooper likely died in the attempt, His widow told the Seattle Times that Captain Scott didn't like to talk about the hijacking, but later in life, he mused that Cooper probably jumped into Lake Mirwin and got tangled up in dead trees and died. Will the mystery of D.B. Cooper ever be solved? The case is closed, but the FBI will accept any compelling piece of evidence, like another discovery of ransom money or more pieces of parachute. In the end, though it might come down to someone deciding to step forward and tell the truth. It may just take someone, Carr said, who remembers that odd uncle. For now, the story of D.B. Cooper remains one of the greatest mysteries in American history. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast and keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China